Whenever my boys and I go on long hikes, we always grab a walking stick. But one of the problems with sticks is that sometimes they break. When something breaks, you have to do something to try to bind it back together. You probably had this happen with a toy when you were a kid or maybe just something around the house. You glue it, you tape it, you tie it, you try to do something to make it stick together. You've probably had a relationship get broken too. Someone did something that broke your confidence or violated your trust and you no longer saw each other, or you no longer talked, or maybe you no longer texted or emailed because the relationship was broken. And distance began to creep in into what was once a close relationship. Sometimes on our journey in life, we feel the same way with God. Our relationship gets broken and He feels distant. We often can't even pinpoint it, but there just seems like God isn't close anymore. The good news is you're not alone. Everyone in their life has experienced times where they feel distant from God because all of our relationships with God are broken. In the Garden of Eden, we were fully in the presence of God and He was the source of life. But outside the garden, God feels and seems distant. But He doesn't want it to be that way. When a relationship gets broken, we make some agreements in order to restore the relationship. Kind of like glue or tape. We make some promises. We agree to some new shared values. We say things like, listen, I'll do my part if you'll do your part. Well, there's a fancy word for that in the Bible that I want to talk to you about. It's called covenant. So we don't use the word in our modern day language or just everyday conversations a lot, but today I want to talk about this word <coughs> covenant. Hey, uh, if you're new here and I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name's Carter. I'm lead pastor here and really uh, honored that you came. If you're one of our regular folks here at Mountaintop, it's always always great to see your your smiling face and so great to see so many people returning and so great for so many of you to join online I always like to connect uh, during uh, during our our music portion with some of you online so it's great to be with you but I want to share about this word covenant because usually when we when we talk about it in today's language it's bad like HOA covenants right you ever lived in a neighborhood with HOA covenants and the neighborhood association sends you a really nasty letter because you didn't cut your grass or your color of your shutters weren't in the neighborhood color palette or they don't share your appreciation for that old truck on cinder blocks in the front yard? It's called rural art, right? And so you get this nasty gram, and they tell you that you've got to do, you got to change this, you got to cut the grass, you got to do whatever. But the purpose of those covenants is really for the benefit of everyone in the neighborhood, right? You've agreed to these behaviors to together. You've agreed to these standards, and they keep everyone's house and yard looking nice. They keep property values up, right? 
And, and so you understand that these are agreements that you made when you moved into the neighborhood. And when you get one of those nasty grams, if you fix it, you cut the grass, you move the truck, you repaint the shutters in the right earth tone colors that the neighborhood has approved, the relationship is restored again. Because you kept the covenant, you fixed the covenant. Now, another place that we use this word in modern day language that's a little more positive is when we go to a wedding and we talk about the marriage covenant. And we don't talk about a lot of other relationships that way, but maybe we continue to use that in marriage because we understand that marriage is a relationship unlike any other. And we have some agreed upon behaviors in the marriage relationship, in this marriage covenant that is going to bind this relationship and make it different from every other relationship. And if you break those behaviors, then you, you break the covenant, you break the relationship, and there has to be a lot of work to, to restore that relationship. Those kind of covenants between neighbors living in a neighborhood or between a husband and a wife are what the ancient world called parity covenants. Now, what, what kind of parity, what, what do you think a parity covenant is? Parity is when things are equal. So a parity covenant is a covenant between two equal partners, a husband and a wife or neighbors, maybe a business partners. You might have a business covenant that's a parity covenant between two business partners. No, but what do you do when one party holds more power in the relationship? That's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. If you weren't here last week or if it was just a crazy busy week and you need just to kind of catch up a little bit, that's where what we talked about last week. Adam and Eve were in this relationship with God where there was a tree of life. You can see just behind there that they were able to be in. They were, that was the presence of God was represented in the tree of life and they were able to be in fully in the presence of God. The Garden of Eden is where heaven met earth. And they weren't separated from God, but they made a decision to disobey from God and eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The one thing that God asked them not to do, he said, you, you can, but you mustn't. You really shouldn't. I just want you to trust me. And they make this decision, and all of a sudden, there is a barrier put up. There is a separation, and there is a distance between humanity and the source of life between humanity and God, between humanity and the true presence of our creator. And now we're out here, we, we've got this knowledge of good and evil, and we see it in the world, and we don't know what to do with it. Like We don't know how to fix the evil to make things good again. And what do you do if you're not the one with the power, the one who has the power, in this case, God has to make a move to try to restore the relationship. Maybe this makes sense, like in the, if you think about a job for someone who keeps habitually coming in late and the boss or the owner of the company might say, hey, if you'll come in early and sweep and clean for a month, I'll let you keep your job. Or uh, if someone makes, uh, makes the company lose a lot of money because of something that they do wrong, say, hey, if you'll pay back the money, I'll let you continue working. You can continue to be a part of the company. But if, if you are the lesser power in the relationship, then the one who has the power has to make the move to make a covenant to restore the relationship. In ancient times, this kind of covenant was called a suzerainty covenant. Now, that's a, that's a really big word. The suzerain 
was the king or the government who made agreements with their subjects. If you do this, I'll do that. That's not too uncommon for us. Think about it this way. Our taxes are a little bit like suzerainty covenants. Like we understand that if we pay taxes that our local government's gonna pave roads, fix water leaks, right? There, there, there's things they're gonna do. With our federal taxes, we understand that because we pay federal taxes and we live here, if there's an attack on American soil, our, our, our military is going to protect us. There's kind of an agreement there, right? So we understand this kind of suzerainty kind of thinking. If we do our part, you'll do your part, and things will be all right. And this is the way most people think about God. This is the way most people think about God. We know things are broken between us and God. We know that it's not just Adam and Eve, but we've done it ourselves, that we've all made mistakes. And we wonder how in the world that we could get things right with God. And we ask ourselves this question often just to say, what in the world do I have to do? Or maybe it's this one. How right do I have to be to make things right with God? Like, we, we all know that we have made our own mistakes. We have our own behavior that has created separation and distance between us and God, and we want to be made right with God again. And maybe you've asked yourself this question, how right do I have to be to make things right with God? And this question will kind of drive you crazy on your journey. Because you look at some people, and you'll feel pretty good about yourself, right? You feel pretty right. But you look at other people, and you'll feel lousy about yourself in comparison to them. But the truth is that none of us feel right enough, often enough, and that's the problem. And we get sidetracked in our relationship with God because of this question and because of this kind of way of thinking and, and because of this issue, and we don't understand the concept of covenant. So let me tell you what covenant is about. It's God saying this to you, as God as the suzerain, God as the power, saying this, God wants a relationship with you. God wants you to trust him. And covenant is the glue or the tape or the binding agent that God uses to restore our broken relationship with him to make things right. But covenant is God's way of saying I want a relationship with you, and I want you to trust me. So last week, we ended talking about the story of Abraham, this 75-year-old man with no children who God comes to and says, Abraham, I know this seems crazy, but I am going to use you to build up a nation and I'm going to birth a nation through you and your wife, Sarah, that is going to bless all people. I'm going to reveal myself now to the world on the other side of the Garden of Eden, not through a place, but through a people. And just what God says to Abraham would happen, happened. Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And all of a sudden, Abraham and Sarah's bloodline becomes a nation 
thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. It's an amazing promise that God keeps, but God also promised something else to Abraham you may not know about. At that same time he makes that promise, he says, Abraham, I want to tell you something else. After, after I build you into a nation, you're going to be in a land that is not your own under oppression and slavery for 400 years. And that happens too in Egypt. For 400 years, God's people are under Egyptian slavery and they finally cry out to God. And they ask God to deliver them, to save them. And God raises up a leader who's got a foot in both worlds, a Hebrew, an Israelite, who was raised in the house of Pharaoh, ruler of Egypt. It's because God's got to free this people. If this people are supposed to be how God is going to bless the nations, and they've got to be a free people. If this people is going to be how God reveals himself to the world on the other side of Eden, then this people has to be a light to the nations. This is what God has to do. And God says that he's going to do this by delivering them and taking them to a land that he has promised for them. And so Moses, he conjures up all the courage that he's got in him. And he goes before Pharaoh, and then Charlton Heston says, or Moses, one or the other, right? Like the old Ten Commandments movie. That's kind of why we always think about Moses. He goes before Pharaoh, and he says those famous words. You know what he says? Let my people go. Come on, say it with me. Let my people go. Say it with us at home there. And Pharaoh says, um, yeah, uh, no. Like, why would I let you go? You've been working for us for 400 years. You worked for my daddy and my granddaddy and my great-granddaddy. Why would I let you go? And then the story gets bonkers. I mean, God delivers plague after plague to display his power to Pharaoh to try to convince him that he's the one true God and he needs to let his people go. There are hailstorms, there are frogs, there are locusts. Y'all, this week we were at um, uh, we were at a football game. My boys play football, and in the middle of the football game, a cicada flies onto my wife's leg. Okay, she shakes it a little bit. My sweet wife, she's over there. She's not a bug person at all. And, um, and then she's like, get it off, get it off, get it off. And I heroically, <laughs> heroically slapped the cicada off. And them, them jokers are big, right? I mean, they're, they're huge down here in the south. Can you imagine? I mean, a locust is something like that. Millions, billions of locusts. And Pharaoh remains unconvinced. Ten plagues, and he still won't free the people. And God's had enough. And then God tells the Israelites through Moses to do something really weird. He says, I want you to take a lamb, and I want you to cut it open and take the blood of the lamb, and I want you to spread it on the doorpost of your homes. I want you to take this blood and I want you to put it all over the doorpost of your home. The interesting thing, the interesting thing here is that the word for covenant in the Hebrew comes 
from the, is, in Hebrew is the word barith. And it comes from the word bara, which means to cut. Because a covenant meant kind of like we would say to cut a deal or to cut an agreement. And often in the ancient, in the ancient world, people would ratify a covenant by cutting an animal and splitting it in two and walking between the two parts. And I'm not sure the Israelites caught it right here. I'm not sure they caught it. But what God was saying is, I'm about to cut an agreement with you to display my power and reveal myself in you, through you, for all people. And this is what he says after he tells them to put that blood on the door. This is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. God says to them, I'm here to prove, in case anybody had forgotten, in case anybody wondered, it's been a minute since the Garden of Eden, that I am the one true God, and disobedience has judgment. Disobedience has consequences, and I'm going to exact my judgment on the world. And then he says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate as a festival to the Lord. A lasting ordinance. Moses, Hebrew people, I know it doesn't make sense. I, I, I know you don't understand how this is going to work. I, I, know, I, I, know it's not like, I know it's not like putting two and two together. I, I know it's a little bit complicated. And I just want you to trust me. Here's what I want you to know, Israel. God wants a relationship with you. And God wants you to trust him. I want a relationship with you. And I want you to trust me. Maybe that's a part of the faith that you've struggled with. Maybe you've struggled with trusting God. Maybe you've struggled to, to believe God because it doesn't always make sense. And God tells the Israelites, this isn't going to make sense, and I know you're not going to get exactly how this is going to work, but you're going to celebrate this Passover for thousands of years. And this time, unlike the Garden of Eden, they trust him. And every Hebrew household is spared God's judgment, and Pharaoh finally relents and says, please leave. I have seen the power of God, the one true God. And they began to head to the promised land. Now, it gets a little dicey around the Red Sea, but they get out, another miracle, God parts the waters, and they begin on a journey to the promised land. 50 days later, 50 days later, God makes a big-time covenant with them. And he is the initiating 
suzerain, the he is the initiating party as the king, as the ruler, as the God of the people. And this kind of suzerainty covenant is what we call a obligatory or conditional covenant. And that makes sense to you, right? That means there are obligations to keep. There are conditions to keep to be a part of the covenant. And these are the obligations. We call them, hey, we have a lot of different names for them. We call it the law. Anytime you hear the word the law or the Ten Commandments, those are kind of the, the big ten, the huge, uh, the huge major ones. But there were actually 617 Levitical rules, 617 rules in the book of Leviticus. These rules are to set them apart. These rules are to give them a kind of behavior that will make them different from all the other nations. These rules are to help them come back into the presence of God. They're to help them become made right in the presence of God. They're to help take the barrier down between this world and God's world. This, these rules bring them closer to God. And here's the, here's the condition that God gives them. Here's the condition. You keep these laws, and I'll be your God. That's it. I'm going to give you these laws. You keep these laws, and I'll be your God. I'll go before you into battle. I'll protect you. I'll cover you. I will bless you. You keep these laws, and I'll be your God. Hey, guys, I know you were wondering, he tells the Israelites, how right? I know you were asking yourselves this question. How right do I have to be to make things right with God? Hey, here are the rules. This right. This how right you be. These commandments, these 617 rules, this is how right you have to be. This is what it looks like to be God's people. But this is what's amazing. God wants them back in his presence so much. He does something incredible. Because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking what I'm thinking. Like Adam and Eve had trouble with one commandment. Right? They're probably going to struggle with ten commandments. And they're definitely going to struggle with 617 laws. God wants them back in his presence so much that he creates a way for them to be in relationship with him and in his presence even when they break the rules, even when they disobey inevitably the laws of God. He takes Moses up on the mountain and he says, I want you to take two stone tablets and write down the laws, write down specifically these Ten Commandments that he comes back down with. Now, isn't this kind of fascinating? I, I learned this as I was, I was studying this, and it made so much sense. <clears throat> and I just thought about how wrong we've got it in art for years. Okay, so he's got two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. Okay, what's written on the, on the tablets? Ten Commandments, okay. How many is written on each one? Like every picture you've ever seen has five written on one and five written on the other. So let me ask you, when you signed a contract with your house uh, to buy your house, did you keep half the contract and then they kept the other half? No, you got a copy, the lawyer's got a copy, the seller's, right? This was a contract. 
And actually, most archaeologists, because this is the way covenants were back then, is that these were copies of the contract, copies of the covenant, that all Ten Commandments were written in both, one for God's people and one for God. And just like your important documents, you would go and put them away in a safe, or we put them in a safe deposit box, or you stick them in a coffee can and bury it in the backyard, whatever you do, right? You keep it in a safe and sacred place. And, but God does this. This is incredible. This is incredible. He said, I want you to take your copy, and I want you to take my copy, but we're going to keep them together. And he gives them directions to build this ornate chest called the Ark of the Covenant. This is not it. This is just a representation of it. Nobody has ever found it. After Indiana Jones, nobody wants to. Right? <laughs> Nobody wants to. I don't want to be near that thing. But God says, I want you, I'm not going to take my covenant and keep it in a secret, separate place, and you keep yours. We're going to take this covenant and we're going to keep it and hold it together because I want you in relationship with me. I want you to be in presence, in the presence with me. And they carry this ark before them into battle. They have men, and God's presence goes before them. And he gives them directions about how to build a tabernacle, which was a, a portable temple, basically, a tent of meeting. And inside it was a special room called the Most Holy Place. It would later become a permanent structure known as the temple with an inner sanctum called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And he said, I want you to put the ark of the covenant there, and there my presence will come on earth. Heaven will meet earth again like it did in Eden, in the tabernacle, and eventually in the temple. And once a year, one time a year, the high priest would go behind the curtain into the presence of God again. Into the presence of God again. And just a little side note, they would tie a rope around his ankle because if he had anything unholy in his heart, he would drop dead in the presence of God. And ain't nobody going in there to get him. So they could drag him out. Because the holy presence of God is serious business. He would go before them to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. This is what it says in Leviticus. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. Just like Passover when the Hebrew people were saved by the blood, on the Day of Atonement, the Hebrew people are saved by the blood. Atonement. I had a seminary professor that used to say it this way, at one If you want to know what it means for that our sins are atoned for, we are made at one with God again. Our relationship is restored again. Our brokenness is fixed again. Even when they mess up, God establishes a way for them to be back in right relationship with God. And you may be asking, 
Why does God give rules and then a process to restore the relationship when, the, when they break the rules? Why does God keep making ways to make things right with his people even when we get it wrong so much? Why doesn't God just give up on us? And here's what I want you to remember today, what I want you to take home. Simply this, no matter how wrong you are, God wants to make things right with you. Do you know that? No matter how wrong you are, God wants to make things right with you. God wants a relationship with you. And this covenant that God made with his people, the Israelites in the desert thousands of years ago, was all about God reestablishing his presence with humanity so that once again his people could go back into his presence as the true source of life. And this happens over and over again with God. Him trying to make things right even though they get it wrong. And man, do the Israelites get it wrong a bunch. They groan and complain. It takes them 40 years to get through the desert to go to the promised land. They disobey God again and again. They make idols out of things they shouldn't just like us. And after 40 years of wandering through that desert, when they finally get on the border of the promised land, Joshua, who is Moses' protege, gives them a message, gives them a message that is just like the message he gave Adam and Eve. Listen to what Joshua says about all these commands, about this covenant, this law that God has made with them. Joshua says to them, Hey, guys, <laughs> it's been a rough 40 years, okay? A little up and down. Here's what I want you to know. Promised land's right over there. That's where we're going. Fresh start for everybody. See us set before you today, life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live. You see, that's obligatory and conditional. If you do this, then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But there are some obligations and conditions. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. It's the same message that God gave Adam and Eve. Just obey me and you will have life. And if you disobey me, you're going to find death. And you don't want that. I just want you to trust me. Obey these commands and you will live long and you'll have prosperity in this land. I think, I think Joshua could have said it like this. Hey, guys, 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 everybody come here. You know what these laws are about? God wants a relationship with you. He's not trying to like make life not fun or tell you what to do. And he wants you to trust him. Joshua is so clear that you think that would be enough. But when they get into the promised land, it is a roller coaster. A roller coaster. They they have judges and kings that rule over them, and as the kings of Israel go, so goes God's people. 
And some are good and some are bad, but honestly, most are bad. They forget God. They turn away from God. They get rid of the book of the law. And every prophet after prophet has the same message. Remember the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and freed you from from Egypt. Remember, and he will bless you. Repent. Ask for forgiveness of your sins, and he will forgive you. But if you don't, death, destruction, and disaster are coming. And no matter how hard they try, it seems impossible for them to do right. Have you ever noticed how that no matter how right your intentions are, you still can't do right all the time? Which is why we struggle with that question. How right do I have to be to make things right with God? The law reveals something about us. We can't be right enough, often enough. Disobedience is in our blood. And sin is running through our veins. No matter how hard we try to be right. You know why? Because you are a sinner. And I am a sinner. And everyone that you have ever known or ever met is a sinner. And the reason we struggle with this question is that we know that no matter how hard we try, we can't seem to make things right enough to get right with God. We can't keep up our obligation, our condition, our end of the deal. And if God was going to have a relationship with humanity, he had to make a new covenant. Because the obligatory conditional covenant covenant of the law revealed how good God is and how incapable we are of living up to the standard. So God makes what's called a promissory covenant. Oh, this is good, y'all. This is good. Not a covenant that has conditions, not a covenant where we have to keep up our end of the deal. There's nothing that can stop it. It's all on him. After centuries of disobedience and king after king disobeying God and prophet after prophet begging all those kings to turn back to God, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah about 600 B.C. of a different day and a different kind of covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. Because what was that old covenant? It was what? Obligatory, right? It had conditions. It will not be like that. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, Because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Where did he write it the first time? Wrote it on stone, right? Not this time. 
I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Amen. Adam and Eve got it wrong. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got it wrong. Moses and Joshua and the Hebrews in the desert got it wrong. The kings who saw the glory of the temple get it wrong. I get it wrong and you get it wrong. But I want you to know something. No matter how wrong you are, God wants to make things right with you. God made a covenant to forgive our sins. And too many people... Too many people think God that's, that our relationship with God is still about obligation and conditions. And you think that you could never get it right enough for God to love you, and you think your past disqualifies you from a relationship with God, or you think your presence diminishes the way that God sees you, and you think there's no way that anything could ever usher you back into the presence of a holy God because of all the unholy things that you've done. And maybe that's left you with some questions about who is God and what is this really about and what is possible. Maybe you've ever wondered, could there ever be a person who could keep all the laws all the time? Could there ever be a person who could be right all the time? Could there ever be a person that could make you right with God and righteous with God? Could there ever be a person, a way that you could be ushered back in to the presence of God, this holy God? Could there ever be a way that the barrier could break down between you and God and the separation that you feel with God? And the answer to that is yes. And that yes was a promise given to Jeremiah 600 years before the very first Christmas night in Bethlehem when Mary and Joseph named the promise Jesus. And Jesus was God's new covenant with a world to tell us something. No matter how wrong you are, God wants to make things right with you and you'll have to come back next week to find out how heavenly father who we're so aware of how we don't measure up we're so aware that we're sinners we're not fooling anybody god we're so aware of how broken we are and how separated we are from you and we try to do good act good to try to get things back right with you and we still get it wrong and yet God we need a we need a new promise thank you God that you sent Jesus to tell us that no matter how wrong we are, you still want to make things right with us. And that's what we would ask you here today. Some of us in this room wondering, do you really want a relationship with us? With me? 
And Lord, my prayer is that your Holy Spirit would speak to them today. Speak to people sitting in their living rooms, on vacation, in this room. And say, yes, you may think you are banned from my presence. But I want to meet you here. No matter how wrong you are, child, I want to make things right between you and me. So we surrender and we open to Jesus. Amen. Maybe you are here today and you've never really said yes to Jesus. This might be a day that you begin to open up your heart Next week, we're going to talk about some details about what it means that Jesus died and resurrected for us on behalf of us to forgive our sins, how he became that new covenant. But today, you can begin opening your heart and saying, Lord, meet me here. Move in me. Speak to me. You worship in your homes, and let's worship here as we stand.